Howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, my name is John Paul Kermy. I am a breathwork teacher. I train people on how to teach breathwork as well. I'm really excited to be doing this new podcast with my good friend Feldy called Hangups, where we're going to help you change your life. We're going to show you how to transform your life with different tools. That's right. I'm John Feldman. I'm in a band called Goldfinger. John Paul taught me breathwork. It changed my life. I have struggled with anxiety and depression throughout my life, and I've gotten through it. This is a solution-based show. We're talking about solutions to problems today. great was it the first time when we went to japan for the first time and bidets in every restaurant and every hotel room it's just there yeah the bidet i had never used a bidet before we went to japan and i was afraid of it and then you talked me into it and i was like when you went out on the stage i was like say something about the bidet and you went out on the stage and you're like the bidet in my hotel room gets my ass so nice and shiny and clean and the crowd was going bananas i don't think they understood a word no idea what i was saying yeah yeah. Japanese audiences are the they're it's crazy they're one of the best audiences ever because they just go ballistic I during am, during I, the show and then in between song or during the song and then as soon as you stop they're dead quiet they're so respectful they want to hear everywhere remember that yeah it was like, controlled chaos is what I call it as soon as you started playing they went bananas and then they just stop it's like it's the I've never seen anything like it. And I've never witnessed it. To every single word that I'm saying, they're just trying to, you know, and I'm whatever. They don't. I, most didn't speak English, and I don't really speak Japanese. Yep. Um, what did we learn? We just learned chimpo was dick. I, uh, my, <laughs> that was all I learned. My wife is half Japanese, half dream killer. So um, I know a tiny bit of Japanese. Like unchi means poo poo, right? And uh, yamanasai means stop. And so I've learned. Like I see my wife. Teaching our daughter Japanese. You know? Okay. And my wife speaks and reads and writes Japanese. Oh, me. holy shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She went, her mom is from Tokyo. So she went in the summer, she went to Japan and um, for the summer. And her mom would send her and her sister separately so they couldn't talk to each other. So they had to speak Japanese. Ooh. So she speaks full on Japanese. How the fuck did you land her, man? She's so out of your league, well, dude. Like I always tell people, because when they see my wife, they're like, oh, your wife is really pretty. Like they're shocked. I can hear the kind of surprise in their voice. And it's I'm like, shocking how yeah, pretty I'm, she is. I'm yeah. like, listen, I lost my eyebrows. I didn't lose my game. You know, my, my game <laughs> is still really strong. Just because I don't have any eyebrows doesn't mean I lost my game. I've always been good with the ladies. It's yeah. just when I lost all my hair, it used to be like Joey from Friends where I'd walk into a bar and I'd be like, how are you doing? And then when I lost my hair, it was like, girls were like yeah get away from me and then i had to learn game i had to learn how to talk to women and what they wanted to hear or what they you know what i thought they wanted to hear and it's like i i literally like dove down a rabbit hole of trying to understand the opposite sex mm-hmm. and um it was fascinating like i took it as my job to like just learn and and do all these different things it was really cool and uh and it, you know it's 
it served me well, and I got to date a bunch of beautiful women again. And then, uh, and then I met this woman I had never planned on marrying and never planned on having any kids. I wanted to be on a yacht with models, like Leonardo DiCaprio stole my life. Mm. And um, I met this woman, and we just connected. And it wasn't like this passionate love affair, like this whirlwind love affair romance. It was just really simple and really easy. And there was no drama. And I had been used to all the drama and all the different relationships with different women, like the fighting and then the making up and all this kind of stuff. And there was none of that. And so I almost missed it because there was no drama. Um, and we just and now I, I've learned so much since we've been married, like the, the five love languages. I don't know if you've heard of the five love languages. Ooh. So there's these love languages that we all have. And um, it's fascinating. So the love languages are... Um, Words of affirmation, what you say to me, like, oh, your class is amazing. Your band is amazing. I love your music, right? Uh, acts of service, what you do for me, making me Rice Krispie treats or doing something really sweet. Uh, gift giving, physical touch, and quality time. So these are the five love languages, right? And in the beginning of a relationship, when you're first with somebody, you do all these love languages. You're doing all of them. You're spending quality time. You're physically touching them. You're saying all these beautiful things. They're doing all the love languages. And that's why the beginning of a relationship is amazing. But then what happens after time is you start to just do your primary love language. We have one or two primary love languages. And my primary love language is acts of service. And my second one is words of affirmation. So what you do for me and what you say to me really makes me feel love. I feel love. And I had this girlfriend who you know, this ex-girlfriend. I don't want to say her name, but she, um, hers, I think, was gift-giving, right? So she started, she was giving me gifts all the time. And I was doing things for her. And so what's happening is we're doing our love language to the other person. And when we find out what the other person's love language is and we do their love language to them, then they feel love. They feel filled up. As the guy says, your love tank is full. But when my wife and I did the love language, there's a quiz online that you can take. It's really cool. We did it together. And it's like, you know, like 20 questions or 30 questions. Would you rather have this or would you rather have this? Would you rather have someone buy you a present or, you know, um, caress, give you a back massage? Like those kind of questions. When we did it, um, our love languages were exactly the same. We had the exact same amount of uh, acts of service and words of affirmation. And for me, like gift giving is my least favorite love language. Now, does that mean I don't like gifts? No, of course I like a gift. But like I'll go buy myself whatever I want. But for some people, they grow up where their dad was gone. Like I worry I'm doing this to my kids where I'm gone. You know, I go on trips for work or whatever and I bring them presents when I get home. And they might feel love that way. Mm -hmm. So this love language thing is really trippy when you start to understand it. Yeah, that's amazing, man. I've never heard that before. I found in my, I mean, I've been with my wife for 25 years now. And, uh, and for me, it's like love is an action, you know. And at least my, my experience of being with Amy for as long as I've been is that I, it, the feelings change. as you Because, you know, in the beginning, it's just all lust and, you know, sex and touching and all that stuff in the beginning. And and. As, as I get older and having kids, it's just, you, you just don't have the opportunities that you do when you're, you know, kind of together with no children and no marriage and you're just whatever. And now it's like, it's an action. And, you know, like, um, you know, my, uh, my sponsor tells me all the time, he's just like, dude, you've got to, you know, when you want to, when you want to separate, you know, that's the, that's the time that's the hard. when you want to get a separation, it's the hardest time to go give her a foot massage, but that's mm -hmm. the time you need to give her a foot massage, you know? And when you really feel like it's time for a divorce, you know, write her that poem or that song and leave it under her pillow, you know? And that's contrary action. 
Exactly. Contrary action has saved my marriage more than anything. Contrary action has changed my entire life. It's the one one principle. Uh, I mean, there's lots of principles from the program, but there's the one principle that has really changed my life is contrary action. If I just do the opposite of what my head tells me to do in the moment, my life goes really, really well. Mm-hmm. You know, I see some attractive woman and I start to fantasize about what that would be like. And then I go buy my wife flowers instead. And so my head might think all kinds of crazy stuff, but my actions of who I am actually dictate something else. Yeah. First thoughts wrong. This, you know, I remember a while ago I had an employee and, and, and he was like, I, th- I, you know, I need to take two days off in a row. <laughs> my, I, I mean, I'm such a workaholic and I'm so fucking gnarly. I mean, you know, in some ways I'm re- a really great boss. In other ways, I, I'm just really demanding because I just have really high expectations. I toured with you, I know. Yeah, really <laughs> high expectations for people that work with me. And, my, you know, my first, I remember like, you know, this is a clear thought I had. I'm like, I'm like, you fucking, what the fuck else do you have to do? Don't you love music? I mean, aren't you grateful to be part of this? Like, what the fuck is wrong with you? That was my first thought. And I was like, you know, what was I going to text him? You know, and I just waited. I just paused, you know, and then I just waited because first thoughts usually wrong for a head like mine. And then I just responded, no problem, exclamation point, smiley face. You know what I mean? And that's really like the only, that's the only way to go. I mean, it's like I have to, because look, if, if they're asking for, you know, five days off a week. It's one thing. It's not like that. You know, a, a couple of days off a month, I think is totally appropriate. I'm exactly like you. I expect a lot out of people. And my wife is like, you're, you're really hard on people. You expect so much from people. I'm like, yeah, because that's what I expect out of myself. Right. And I think you touched on another great principle, which was like pause when agitated. Mm-hmm. But my problem is, is I can pause when agitated and then still say the horrible thing or still send the email. So I, I've now incorporated pause when agitated and then take a bunch of deep breaths or go do some breath work or go in my flow tank or yeah. go meditate or go exercise. Like I have to do something. I know I've watched you on Facebook. I've just I've witnessed the whole fucking demise of your social media fucking addiction. And it's like I have to be. We'll talk about it. like you and I. We've had conversations. Someone will say something on your Facebook page that's negative, yeah. And you're like, I'm not gonna. I'm, you know, I, I know I shouldn't do anything. I know I shouldn't respond. And I'm like, yeah, don't. Just t- tell me. You'll tell me about it. And, it's and then response. fucking a half hour later, I look on your Facebook or whatever, and you've done this like you've responded. I'm I like, know. I've, what I, the fuck? That's been that's been one of my biggest challenges, one of my biggest struggles. And now it's even worse because. You know, I'm doing these, I have these online courses that I sell that it's amazing. Like people go and do my online course in different countries all over the world. And then they send me these emails like that would change my life. That course was amazing. But these guys have were running ads for the course and people, the shit that people say and the comments that people say that I don't know, mm-hmm. it's been painful. I mean, some of the stuff that people come out with. And I had that experience when I had an, an article come out in Huffington Post about me when I was a sober coach, you know, when I was out there doing that. And the title of the article is like, this man helps Hollywood stay sober. And I looked at the comments underneath it. And some of them, some of them were funny. Like, I can appreciate a funny joke. You know, one guy said, that guy's look will keep anybody sober, right? <laughs> Which I thought was hilarious, right? But then it's just other people and a lot of people in recovery in the program just saying all this nasty stuff. Yeah. Um, and I had talked to some of my celebrity friends, like, you know, and they were like, you can't read the comments. Like, yeah. you can't. And I had never experienced Have you stopped that. looking at the comments? Yeah. No. I've stopped responding. I was like, one step at a time. Yeah. I've stopped responding. And I, you know, sometimes I'll delete them or hide them or whatever because um, they're just brutal. 
But uh, once in a while, I'll, I'll go down the rabbit hole. But I'm really, I, I feel like I'm really good at staying away. I just know how. I mean, my my brain is prone to anxiety and depression, and 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 I, I if I seek it out, I mean, I can I, I like give me three seconds, and I'll find. I don't know, a hundred negative comments about some album I've produced or some bullshit. And I remember I was, I had to go on Reddit, you know, this one time when we were promoting uh, the Blink album, California, which was, you know, nominated for a Grammy. And it was like one of the biggest records I've ever been involved with. And I'm really proud of that. But I went on Reddit and the people's caught me. And I, it was like a live stream. So I was like on oh. it doing it. And I, so I couldn't not see, I couldn't unsee what people were saying. And it was just so much about like, you know Jerry Finn, their um, their old record producer, who you know passed away from a brain aneurysm, and really cl- they, one of the guys that had the most class of any any guy maybe I've ever met in the music business. You know, this guy taught me so much about you know guitar tones and about bus compression, about all all sorts of stuff about how to mix a song. Really legendary guy, you know, and people would just you know saying you know we we miss Jerry, we miss Jerry. Of course, man, and so do I. You know, the guy made some of my favorite records of all time. You know, but unfortunately he passed away, and you know I. I know I, without a shadow of a doubt, I did, I did the best, the best I could. And I guess I want, I was thinking earlier, like I had, I got really sick right before I, I the second half of that Plink record and I had to take the, um, prednisone or whatever the, uh, the, the chorus was. Yeah. And God, it was, we, 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 we wrote the song, no future. Like when I was on it, like I just came up with this idea of the, you don't know a thing about me. Like I came up with this thing and I was like, is it the prednisone or is it fucking, am I a good songwriter? You know yeah, what I mean? And you're I, an amazing songwriter. Thank you, man. And I presented it to, to, you know, to Travis and he loved the beginning of it. And we ended up writing this really great song on California, which ended up being great, which, um, probably has nothing to do with, with our conversation earlier, but I mean, there is something about positive thinking and being in a good place and being able to create, yeah. you know? And that's why when I, when I, you know, I did this Reddit thing, I just told my manager afterwards, I said, I don't ever want to do that again because it's not going to, I mean, I don't know if it helps the people that are talking shit or if it helps them, you know, in any way by saying, you know, we wish, you know, the band used to be what they used to be or the old producer or whatever, if it helps them. But it certainly doesn't help me. Right. And it, and it doesn't help me create great music, which, you know, there are people that really do enjoy the music that I create and it doesn't help me. So I just don't want to I just don't want to put myself in that situation. again. I, I wouldn't either. I mean, you'll you'll almost never be criticized by someone who's more successful you, than you or someone working harder than you. It's always someone who's like less successful and just judgmental and jealous. It's al- almost always that, every time. And so, you know, I always just try and ignore and remember that. And it's people that are jealous. And it's now everybody has a voice. Like everybody can get on the keyboard and talk all kinds of shit and say all kinds of horrible things. And, you know, those people, I understand what's going on with them. They hate themselves and they and they, they want to push that hate out of themselves at other people. It's like you treat people how you're feeling. And I know when I'm kind of shitty and I'm feeling shitty and I, I, I want to lash out at people around me and I want to look at the things that piss me off. But when I'm feeling good and when I'm positive and I'm in that beautiful place, I'm the nicest, best guy on the planet. Mm-hmm. So it's really a reflection of how they're feeling inside the people who say all that terrible shit on the internet. It's like, that's, they hate themselves Mm -hmm. and they hate that they're stuck in this, whatever it is that they can't break out of it. And when they see people living the life that they wish they could be living, it hurts. Yeah. And, um, it takes, I mean, for me, I I don't know if the 10,000 hours rule has been disproved or where it's at, but I mean, I really believe at least in my life, like I had played 
10,000 hours worth of shows before Goldfinger really broke through and made it so I wasn't able, I didn't have to sell shoes anymore. You know, right. when Goldfinger got signed and went on the road, it's like I had done those 10,000 hours between my first band, Family Crisis, and the Electric Love Hogs. I'd, I'd put the hours in touring to make it so Goldfinger was ready to be. And, and it's like I see so many artists today that I work with that like have one song that connects, that goes viral, or some, you know, uh, TikTok or YouTube thing that just happens quickly and it's like they don't have the hours and the experience behind them and there's no weight behind their career and it just doesn't last I and that's agree. the challenge I agree I mean I think Goldfinger had a Guinness record right for the most to- most shows in one 385 year. shows we played in 1996 that's incredible which is the the, the most amount of shows anyone has uh, has played for a touring band you know that we played we had three days off and we played a bunch of like two show days we play an afternoon matinee show for the kids and then we play 118 and up show at night so it was that's it was incredible. wild man but wild to, t- to touch on what you just said like with the people just you know i think that's indicative of what's going on in a lot of areas right now where the people don't want to put the work in they just want to become they i see that in my in my field it's like they immediately want to jump. I'm doing teacher trainings. I teach people how to teach breath work. And there's people who have emailed me like, if I do your teacher training, can I then do my own teacher training? And I'm like, you haven't even done the breath work yeah. and taught classes. And you want to just jump to the teacher training. That makes zero sense. It's like I'm seeing like 20-year-old life coaches out there. And I'm like, you're 20. Like, you haven't had a successful business yet. You haven't had a successful relationship. Like, what are you coaching people on? Yeah. You need experience. You need time. You need to put the hours in. You know, I think that experience is the greatest teacher there is. And people just want to skip over that and use marketing and social media and whatever. And those those are amazing tools. Like those tools have really expanded what I do. A lot of people come to my classes and my trainings because of social media, which is great. But I really put the time in. Mm -hmm. You know, I did the classes and I did the million sessions and I was just working with person after person after person just getting better and hammering away at my craft i i want to be the best breathwork teacher in the fucking planet so how do i become that well i just keep fine-tuning it and working at it and working at it and now i i think i have the biggest classes out of anyone out there that does breathwork right have there have you trained anyone that's become as big as you no i've got some people trying but no 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 one's gotten there how how challenging is that when you've got people that you've brought up that have now they're now your competition i don't i don't mind it what i if i like i like to see my students become successful that feels good but what i don't like is when they literally like copy and paste my shit off my website and then claim it as their own like i've had that happen a couple times i had this one woman take my you know do my training and i was you know mentoring her and promoting her and she literally stole my teacher training and is doing my teacher training now and and her stuff is like it's my stuff verbatim and her ads are my ads like everything i created over the last 10 years is like she's just using it and yes i could get a lawyer and do all that but like i don't want to put my energy there i don't want to put my time there i want to just i'm going to keep creating i've never been sued i've never sued anybody and uh i just i i, I just you got to move on that's yeah. my opinion i mean look and, and there are situations that warrant having to get protection i totally get that I, and i haven't been that uh, you know, taking advantage of that, that has never happened to me, but there's definitely situations that have warranted a lawsuit, but I just, I have to move on. I just can't put that. I have to focus on what's right. It's like the idea of like your resentments versus your gratitude, you know? And I think about, you know, 
my amazing, beautiful wife who takes care of my kids better than anybody on the planet, who just loves me, loves our kids. I think about, you know, how amazing my, my kids are, how healthy they are. And I just focus on that gratitude and it grows exponentially. Mm. Then I think about my annoying wife that just doesn't stop shopping. Every day she's out there shopping for something. And I'm like writing this, you know, resentment down or my kids that just won't go to bed when I tell them to, that just don't, they don't want to do anything physical. They just want to stay on their, you know, online doing some shit. And then which, and that grows. Then the resentment grows. And what do I want to focus on? And it's the same thing in business. It's like in business, I have to focus on what's working instead of what's not working, you know, and the 10,000 hours that I put into producing because I had produced, you know, it's been Un Loco, Show Off, Messed, like probably five or six artists before I found the used. I had put my 10,000 hours into producing before I discovered the used and made that record, which changed my life as a producer, you know, and I feel like if I would have focused on the failures that I had before the use and I just focused, none of these bands really broke or really took off. I would have just probably quit, you know, and gone back to selling shoes again. But instead I was focusing on what was right. I got the band signed. I was able to let them open for Goldfinger. You know, Mest actually had a gold record in Japan, like these things that were going right. And so by the time I found the used, it was all positivity, but it takes real effort. Yeah. Like you've got to take the action. Like you said, contrary action. Well, the people who fail the most and keep going end up being the most successful people. It's the people who fail and then don't keep going. So I read a book called Failing Forward that really changed my perspective on failing. Like, great, if I fail, great. I just need a couple more failures to get to that success. You said something to me which ruined revenge for me for fucking ever. You said, when I try to get even, I get even worse. And that fucking phrase is in my head every time I want to, like, you know, do something that, like, this person screwed me over, this person ripped me off, whatever. I think of your voice going, when I try to get even, I get even worse. And so I'm like, okay. And you're 100% right. Like, just what I focus on expands, right? So if I focus on all the good shit, that's going to expand. If I focus on all the bad shit, that's going to expand too. I have the same life that you have where I can be sitting in my hot tub and I have this beautiful wife and I have these two beautiful kids and I have this great house and I love what I do for a living. I get to help people and everything in my life is fucking amazing and magical and beautiful. And then I go to bed and I wake up in the morning and my kids are screaming and fighting each other. The dog is shit on the carpet and my wife is mad at me for something I did in her fucking dream. And, and it's like, what happened to my life while I was asleep? It's the same. The facts of my life from the night before to the morning are exactly the same, but everything has just gone to shit in the Mm -hmm. middle of the night and I have to do all these things to get it back on track again to get Mm -hmm. my perception back on track again so I have to get up and I have to meditate and I have to do breathing and yoga and jujitsu and you know I I listen to gratitude uh, YouTube videos where the guys are saying thank you for my car thank you for my heart thank you for my lungs thank you for the sky thank you for vegetables my shrinking nut thank thank you for for my my, thank you for my small Irish penis (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah man Um, perception's everything and how do we keep it that way because I mean the truth is that people that like look at my life and maybe get think uh, well if I had that if I had a house in Calabasas if I had a career I wouldn't have these same problems that I have and like I've just always had this attitude of like I'm not I can't lose because I hated selling shoes so much. Yeah, I can't go back. And a lot of times I meet kids that have, you know, they're entitled or have this kind of you know golden spoon, and they're they they've never had to work a day job, and it's tough. It's really tough, I think, for them to know what the other side looks like if they don't have that experience. And I think well, I'm, I'm going to put my kids to work 
they should be working right fucking now. Yeah. You know, they're off school. They should be out, you know, selling yogurt door to door. I worked in a state forest in Massachusetts. And the jobs, the three jobs that I would do in that state forest was mow the lawns, which the lawn was a forest, right? Or the trash truck, this trash truck where you had to empty these 50-gallon drums, not plastic barrels, 50-gallon drums that were filled with fucking maggots. And it would make me puke off the back of the truck because I was so hungover from the night before. So I'm hanging on with one arm in the trash truck and throwing up. And people are walking out of their campsites like stretching and I'm like, I'm just puking. (laughs) And then the other job was the toilet truck, scrubbing toilets, which was better because I was throwing up from the night before. (laughs) So you had had somewhere to go. But like after scrubbing toilets and, you know, I, I was a dishwasher when I was 12 years old at a Mexican restaurant like I've had all the gnarliest jobs you can have I was a Mason's laborer just the hardest physical laboring jobs and so when I stand up at the front of a class and I keep telling people keep breathing you're doing amazing and like you know you've all done harder shit in your life than lay on the floor and breathe but maybe not because we're in Brentwood you know but like I just I'm just so grateful and I see people like my class I did last week had 240 people in it and those people line up to hug me afterwards. And when you, they say, my wife just taught me this, a kid, a child needs four hugs a day to survive and eight hugs a day to, um, to, for maintenance and 12 hugs a day for growth. And I've been trying to hug my kids 12 times a day. It's actually hard to get 12 hugs in, but like after this class, I think I got 200 hugs Mm. and I just felt filled up and people literally come to me with tears in their eyes and they're like, thank you so much. I needed that. And it's just like, wow, I get to do something that in one hour has this massive impact on people's lives and makes them feel amazing. Mm. And I think about this Maya Angelou quote. She said, people might remember what you said. People might remember what you did, but they'll always remember how you made them feel. And so I think, wow, I get to make people feel gratitude and love. And I'm so blessed and I'm so lucky. And so the best version of me, I think, is in that class in that teacher training. Like I get to be the best me and myself. I hate all the shit. I don't hate it, but like it's brutal. Like all the shit I got to do on the computer, all the business end of it. It's like, and I think that's probably how you might feel or a lot of musicians and actors feel too. when they like, they get to perform on the stage, but like touring is brutal. Like getting on the plane and the bus and the thing and the float in and all that stuff. But then you get to perform for this two hours or whatever. It's like, that's the moment. That's Mm -hmm. the time you get to like, I feel like I'm channeling the universe, channeling something magical, something special when I do my class and I start speaking from my heart and I let my heart open up and then I connect to people in the room and I literally will focus on someone in the room who's crying, who's having a moment and I start speaking to that person. What you do is incredible and it's definitely changed my life. Doing this breath work has definitely changed my life and I remember the first time and it's not like I, I feel like I, I'm, I haven't cried in three years. I'm not that guy, you know. I definitely, right. like, I don't, I don't cry all the time, but I'm also, like, you know, I cry. I, I think I cry the right amount. And, <laughs> and the first time you, uh, you know, taught me, I definitely cried. And it was, like, a really huge experience for me to have that. You know, the tingling in the mouth and my hands, like, the lobster claw or whatever you call it, you know, all that Tetany, stuff. And yeah. I brought so many people, um, you know, we'll start a songwriting session with the breathwork you know, a 20 minute breathwork class, like one of the shorter ones, just, you know, as a first time experience, you know, I'll do one of your things on one of your classes online. And it's like, well, let's listen to um, an MP3. And it's just like people just, it, it, it changes the way they come in the room to write music because they're so much more open than they were when they got here with their anxieties about, 
is my idea going to be good enough, you know, or am I going to have anything to say? And then all of a sudden we've done this breath work and they come in with these amazing ideas, you know, and, uh, it's a game changer. And I don't, I, I don't know who's going to, you know, listen to these po- podcasts, but I mean, if you haven't done this breath work, it's definitely some, um, something that we need to do as humans. Yeah. It just, I think it's really amazing because it clears out that fear and that anxiety that you were talking about. And when you clear out that fear, am I good enough? Is my music good enough? Am I talented enough? Am I smart enough? Whatever. When you clear out all that stuff, then you can just get to work on and you know, open that creativity up and get to work on it and, you know, and start to, to, to channel from a place of positivity, creativity, love and all that stuff like that. So I could see how that would be amazing to do at the start of an album, you know, um, I've seen people use it on all kinds of things, all kinds of areas of their life and change their life with it. And I'm one of them, you know, and it's just so cool that I think you do it with the musicians that come in here. You know? Yeah. We've done it with so many and so many people that like the, the toughest guy in the band or the guy that's like the drummer that you feel like is just, I've never really had a real conversation with them. All of a sudden they're the one that's hysterically crying the most, you know, yeah. and you're like, Holy shit. Wonder what they went through as a kid, you know, Well, the people who uh, push down the most, and, and are closed off the most are the ones who have the biggest results from the breath work. Because it's just the more like sort of you're holding it all in and you're stuffing it all down, the bigger that it just cracks you open. And I was that guy. Like I was like that tough Boston guy. And I went into this weird woo-woo class and I did it. And it was like five people. And I cried like I've never cried in my life. I was like fetal position crying. And then I did it every day for a year and it changed me and it changed my life. And then I just thought, if somebody taught this in a way that wasn't all new agey and woo-woo, there'd be like 200 people in the room. If they taught it for like regular guys or people, that, you know, angry guys or whatever, housewives, it'd be packed. Mm-hmm. And it would be change, It'd be a game changer. And it was the first thing I ever felt like this could actually, you know, change lives on the planet. And, uh, and I think it is now. It's growing like crazy. It's, it's just wild to see how big it's expanded in the last couple of years. I mean, my business, my breathwork thing has just grown so exponentially and I'm, I'm excited to see where it's going to go. Yeah, man. I remember when we were talking maybe a year and a half, two years ago, and you were like, what am I, you know, you're writing scripts and you're, you know, doing all these other, you had like four different kind of career paths and <laughs> to focus on breath work because, I mean, I know that there was people before you that, you know, had done similar style, but you really took it and make, made it your own. I mean, what you do is very unique to you, but I remember telling you, I'm like, dude, yeah. this is what's going to like be, this is your path. You because said it, Matthew Perry said it, a couple other of my really successful I'm friends. I'm taking the credit. Yeah, it's, it's like, when you got to listen to people at that point, too. It's like, I was trying to, I had a sober companion company, and, and I was selling a TV show and writing scripts and doing all this stuff, and everyone was like, you should do the breath work, you should do the breath work. Like, that's that's what the thing, that's where you're I just amazing. remember hearing you tell me stories about, like, your experience with that sober companion shit, a lot, a lot of it, which I know you probably still do on and off, but it's like, man, I mean, some of those negative, you know, people that don't want to be sober that are like you're well, forced to be with, it, it just can't be good for your overall well-being. Well, so I don't do it anymore. I still have the company. I send other people to go do it and it has its benefit. You know, rehab is a bubble where people go to and it's easy to stay sober in rehab, but then when you come home, you go right back into the environment that you were using or drinking in, right? So the idea behind sober companioning is that you go live with this person and you create a structure of sobriety within their life. And it works as much as the person is willing to do. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people aren't willing to do it. They think by just hiring a sober companion and bringing this person into their life, 
that they're going to be sober. It's like back when I was a trainer, when people would hire me as a trainer, they thought that that was going to get him in shape. You still got to do all the work. Yeah, you course. still got to do all the pushups. You still got to do the cardio. You still got to eat right. Sobriety is the I've same way. Never, I've never seen anyone successfully stay sober unless they're willing, you know, to do the work, you know, and, and be and hit some sort of like their own version of a bottom, which doesn't have to be skid row. It's their own version of a bottom. Like, you know, unless they're, you know, willing and open-minded, you know, and most people, I mean, a lot of people that kind of check into these, the Malibu rehabs, a lot of them are someone else is paying for it. You know, yep. it's because someone else wants them to be, to stay alive, which look, I understand. Yeah. I get that. You know, I got children and I would do anything for them, you know, but I've never seen someone stay sober long, long-term without the willingness. You have to do the work. There's no way around it. I mean, this this whole thing should be called there's there's no way around the work. Uh-huh. Whether it's sobriety or breath work or music or anything in life, you have to do the work. And everybody wants the shortcut around the work. Breath work is the shortest shortcut I've ever found where like in an hour you can feel completely different. It's amazing. But there's still work involved. It's still uncomfortable. You still got to lie on the floor and breathe in this way that's intense and do work and push through. And and sobriety is like that too. That every I, I feel like I'm lucky because every time I wanted to quit, every time I wanted to get high or drink or whatever, I dug deeper into doing the work. I reached out to, for help from guys like you and other people and said, like, I'm, this is the situation I'm struggling with. Mm-hmm. And really, that's a big part of it, too, is like asking for help. You know, people think your bottom is, you know, this horrible thing when you get in a car accident or this happens or that happens. Your bottom is when you ask for help. Mm-hmm. That's that's when things change. Until yeah, to you, say your bottom is when you stop digging because you're just you know you've had enough and you can stop at any point. You can get off that elevator and you don't have to go to the bottom floor. You can get off whenever you're ready. Right, but I don't know how to stay sober. I have to go and find someone like you that's going to help me. Mm-hmm. Right, so like, yeah, I, I'm ready to stop digging. I'm ready to get sober, but I don't know how to do it because my brain just knows how to go keep using and drinking. That's all it knows how to do. So I have to find somebody that can help me with that. And so I believe that's the start of the way out of the hole is to ask somebody for help. And, and, and it's hard. I mean, it takes a lot of conflict to, to ask for help, like as a grown man or a woman, whatever, to just be like, I don't know what to do. Whether it's internal conflict, you hate yourself inside, you hate your life, you hate the way you feel, or external conflict, like you lose your marriage, your job, whatever. It takes a lot of conflict to just finally be like, okay, I've messed up. I don't know what to do. I need help. You know, and I, and you know, I'm just so grateful that I did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How many times you jack off during the week? You know, I, I'm seeing this physical therapist now for my shoulder. Uh-huh. And I asked him the other day, I'm like, do you think this has anything to do with... He didn't jerk with- you off, did he? No. I go, but do you think that the shoulder problem, this shoulder injury has anything to do with jerking off? And he laughed and he said, no, I think... It has to, I dislocated my shoulder like uh, body surfing years ago and then also mountain biking. I popped it out of the socket. It was like up here when yeah. I came out of the water and I popped it back in. And he goes, I think it's scar tissue from that. And so I have really cut back on jerking off massively because <laughs> I just – I mean three times a day now? No, I'm like I think I'm lucky if it's once a week. But I've, but my wife and I have like turned up the uh, the sexy time, the yeah. volume on the sexy time, which is really nice. So and, once a year now with your wife? No, no, like a, a couple a couple times a week. <laughs> Good for you, man. Yeah, I Two mean, kids, that's a lot. It, awesome. Man. It is. We have to put the TV on. Like I have a friend that's like, oh, our kids don't watch TV. I'm like, how do you have sex? I mean, yeah. why, why would you do that to yourself? I mean, we put a good show on, a quality show, an educational show, and then kids make sure the kids are safe, and then we run into the room and. 
I only need about seven minutes at this point. Yeah. You I, know, I can go two and a half easy. I can just be done in two and a half. No problem. Because it's like, we've got the kids. We just don't know when the kids are going to start banging on the door. And you're like, well, I got to finish before they start banging. Because as soon as you hear your kid's voice, it's not really. Yeah. It's a boner it's killer. Over. You're like, Ooh. yeah, it's a boner killer. It's for also sure. a porn watching killer because you know, you, you, I, I remember thinking this one time, like when I had, after I, my daughter was born, I was like, this, you know, this is somebody's daughter. Yeah. That's exactly the this same is, thought I had. It's somebody, so crazy that you're saying that. I pushed that. through anyway, but it's like, you know, this well, is somebody's daughter. I had, to, I had to switch to the MILF porn. Like, I couldn't look at young girls in porn anymore, and I switched to the MILF porn. And now, as this breathwork teacher, I'm trying, you know, I've tried to, like, kind of get rid of porn, like eradicate porn yeah, from my life. Yeah, I, I totally understand that, you know. Um, there's there's definitely, like, you know, how how if... How how many people want to be doing that for a living? You know, if, I mean, I guess I'm sure there are some that really enjoy it. Yeah, right. But for the most part, it, it doesn't seem like a career you can have. No, for- I mean, listen, I try not to judge what people's career choices are and you know how they live their life. Um, I for me, it doesn't feel good. Like it's it's kind of like it's not terrible, but for like I I'll look if I look at porn like afterwards I just don't feel great about it. Sometimes it's fine, but other times it's not. And so I've I've cut back. It's a rare rare thing that I look at porn now. And uh, you know some people might even be shocked. Like people have this idea of me because I teach breath work that I'm like some fucking spiritual guru. Mm-hmm. That's a Facebook argument that I got into one time when I was arguing with someone. They're like aren't you this spiritual guru breathwork teacher? I'm like, no, I never said I was. I never made claim to be a spiritual guru. I'm a guy who found this incredible technique that changed my life, that made me find gratitude and love for my life and my what I have, and I'm sharing it with other people. And I'm doing the best I can in every moment, but I'm not some fucking enlightened Dalai Lama spiritual guru. That's not who I am. You think, I, the, you think the Dalai Lama jerks off? I don't know. And it's a great question. I, I tell people like if the Dalai Lama had to drive in the 405 freeway in Los Angeles, he would definitely punch somebody in the face eventually. <laughs> my car drives itself. I don't even notice traffic anymore, man. It's the fucking best thing in my Tesla. I just go autopilot and I just, just return all my emails. I listen to all my mixes. I just like, it's so good. If I was still living in Los Angeles, I would for sure buy a Tesla, oh, but dude, I'm getting the, the Tesla best, truck. Dude. I can't wait till yeah, it comes it's so out. so good. I'm super excited. I'm going to get the quad that goes up on the back of the truck that plugs in. The test the quad. I think I think it, it I think it harkens back on the idea of uh, putting putting the work in because I mean for for me I, I you know I'm I'm a really positive over you know people that come work with me and and follow my socials I'm very positive I mean I say I love my life loud out loud I was taught that you know my sponsor said you know no matter how you feel homicidal suicidal say it out loud mm. you know it'll change your brain chemistry you know and you're not smarter than you you think you're so smart that you can't trick yourself yeah. into feeling different that's not the truth I'm not. Maybe I'm not that smart or maybe that's not how the, the human body works. But other, you know, I, I, like I said earlier, man, when I, I wake up the same as you, it's like I got these stressful, negative, anxious or depressive thoughts that come right when I wake up and I've got to do the work to get rid of them. I have to jump in my cold pool every morning. I've got to meditate. I've got to do the work. I've got to say I love my life. I mean, my whole morning routine, if I miss one thing out of it, it affects my, my whole day. But I mean, the first time, you know, when I had, uh, you know, I hit, I guess, some kind of, I guess, sober bottom when I was living in Bel Air and I had this huge life and the used were, you know, the, the singer for the used discovered my chemical romance and alternative radio just changed. I mean, the whole format was based on this, like 
kind of post-hardcore screamo sound that like I was between story of the year and the use that I was defining. And it was like, it changed everything. I was making so much money. I had a great job at Warner Brothers. I had a great mentor with Tom Wally who taught me so much. This guy, I mean, he signed Tupac Shakur. He signed him at Burbank Airport, knew he had a connecting flight at Burbank, went to the airport, waited for him to get off the plane, signed him to a record deal, like getting off a plane. This guy's a leg- legendary A&R guy, like ran Warner Brothers. I worked for him for 10 years. This guy taught me so much, but he got fired, which I, I couldn't believe that would have ever happened because the guy was such a legend. So he got let go. So his whole team was fired. So this guy, Craig Aronson, that I came up with was let go. And then I was, who also had alopecia, this lo- lovely, lovely man. And I met Craig with you one night at Tom Wally's house. That's right. You know, Craig, Craig was a great, great guy, um, passed away of brain cancer and, and really, I'm still really tied with his family, but you know, what happened is we had to sell our house in Bel Air because I just couldn't afford it anymore. And, you know, I heard all these things on the West Side about the fucking valley, the 818, man, like where dreams go to die, you know, all this shit. And it's like, so I, you know, I had a family and I, you know, I could afford a house in Woodland Hills and that's where we moved. And it was like, but I, you know, a lot of stuff changed. My friends changed, you know, because, it, you know, it takes you sometimes an hour and a half to get from the valley back into the west side. So I just wasn't hanging out with the same people. I lost connection with a lot of guys that I was hanging out with. And um, I got really fucking depressed, man. I mean, it was like a real thing. And I'd, I'd, I'd hear people talk about depression. I would just think, dude, just fucking get, you know, just get over it. I would just think, what the fuck is wrong with you? I would, I just didn't get it until I went through it, Mm. you know, until I had it and affected my life where like I'd wake up and I was thinking suicidal thoughts and I had all the shit that didn't make any sense because I had a healthy family and the shit that mattered didn't change. You know, I stayed married, all that stuff, but because I wasn't making as much money, my success, you know, after the kind of that scene died and EDM kind of took over and became like a kind of a dance culture and it wasn't my world, you know, and I just, I wasn't getting as many jobs and it was like, what the fuck am I going to do? How am I going to support my, my family and all that stuff moved to the Valley. And it was like this one day I was driving up the four Oh five, um, you know, going over to, uh, for a meeting and I just, I, I, you know, I call, call my sponsor and I'm just like, I'm waking up in the morning and it's been months, like, oh, it's been months of this feeling of like, where am I going to put the gun? Like, how am I going to end it? And I have AT&T. So I get to the top of the four or five. I drop the call, of course. Every time. Every time. I call speaking, him, because like, you're not allowed to talk to people once you go into the valley. <laughs> <laughs> so I call my sponsor back and. And he's laughing. He's like, I thought you killed yourself. Oh, he's <laughs> laughing at me. He's fucking funny guy that he is, you know. And and then I, I, I called another guy that um, I get advice from. And he just said, I don't care how you feel. When you wake up in the morning, raise your arms to the sky and face the sun and say, I love my life as loud as you can. And I'm like, my first thought was no fucking way am I going to do that stupid shit, which will never work because I don't believe it. I hate my life. I just don't believe it. I'm not going to do it. You know, and my life got darker and darker and all the shit got worse. Mm. And eventually... A month later, I said, fuck it. I'm just going to do it. And I was in my, my backyard by myself, like up against the wall. And I was like, I'm going to do this stupid shit. And I was interviewing this kid to intern for me. And he fucking shows up a half hour early. My wife let him in and I'm facing the wall. And I'm like, oh, I love my life. You know, and <laughs> I look over and there's a 17 year old kid. And he's like, I love my life too. You know, and, and eventually he didn't get the job. Of course he didn't get the job. It's like, eventually like he called me three months later and he said, Hey man, I fucking been taking pills. I don't know how to stop. And I figured, you know, you were praising the sun God that day. Maybe you've got the answer, you know, cause he saw me take this action. And, um, 
You know, and the guy, the guy's been sober ever since. I was a guy That's that he reached, I was a guy he reached out to, and you just never know how you're going to help someone. I've been doing it every day since because it did change my brain chemistry, and it was the first step out of that hole. Taking contrary action, doing something I didn't think was going to work, and it worked anyway. I just did it. Yep. You know, I teach affirmations. Um, this technique that I learned from Tony Robbins, and Tony calls them incantations, right? Uh, and it's like you got to, he says you have to feel it in your body. You have to bring it in. Cause if you just sit there and say like, I love my life. I love my life. He's like, it doesn't work. You have to literally like start to embody it and feel it in your body. And he goes through each word. So like one I do is like, I'm happy, whole and worthy of love. And we go through each word. I am happy, whole and worthy of love. I am happy, whole. And so you emphasize each word. So in my trainings in my teacher trainings, I have everybody do that. Like when they come back from lunch, they're all lethargic and tired and they want to get the hell out of there. And they're just like, uh, and I have everybody, I go, all right, everybody on their feet. And I go, look at the round, look at the energy around the room. It looks terrible. I get everybody on their feet and I have them pound on their chest and we go through each word and we do it. I am happy, whole and worthy of, I am. And we do the whole thing. And then I just have them do, I love my life. And I have them throw their arms up in the air and look up at the ceiling and scream, I love my life. And I go, do it again, fucking harder. I love my life. And you look around the room and I go, all right, look around the room. And everyone's smiling and laughing. And the entire energy of the room has changed. Everyone's facial expressions, everyone's body has changed in the entire room. And it's like six minutes. Mm -hmm. This whole thing is six minutes. And I go, look at that. There have been times where I was driving to go to some meeting or some interview or something, and I'm just in the worst fucking mood you can possibly imagine, and I'm in horrible traffic, and I go, I'm going to do Feldy's thing. I love my life, and I'm in the car. I'm like, I love my life. I fucking hate my life. I love my life. I fucking hate my life. I lay, and I go back and forth, and then I just start laughing, and uh, I'm like, because I know it just it just shifts yeah, your mood. Yeah, this kid I sponsored who's downtown, he was doing the fruit thing with Teddy, you know, when he was newly sober, and, and he just fucking got, got downtown. He's like, I'm going to... And he told me, he's like, I'm going to do this thing that Feldy does. And it was like still dark out from the morning. And he goes, I love my life. And this homeless guy like peeks up from his thing and goes, no one fucking cares. You know? <laughs> and then he started laughing. He just started laughing and it changed his whole thing because. Yeah. yeah. It's I just mean, funny. Yeah. Laughter, laughter and, br and breathing will change your mood, change your, change your mood. Like if you change your physical state, you can change your emotional state. You know, it's just like, that's Tony Robbins. That's him. Like, he's like, if you want to shift your emotional state and I, there was a time, this is another freaking breathwork story, but some guy ripped me off for a lot of money. I think it was like $10,000 at the time. And I was so angry and being from Boston, I'm like, I'm going to go kill this guy. And then I, I went, you know what? I'm going to lay on the floor and do some breath work. And I laid down and I breathed for 20, 25 minutes and I came to gratitude and love. I got filled up with gratitude and love and it was gone. So I tell people, like, if you know anything that takes you from homicide to gratitude and love in 25 minutes, like, let me know. I need to add that into my life. Mm -hmm. You know, exercise will do that. If you get out in the hills or uh, going for a hike or a walk and you start to just get your physical state. I mean, so much of depression and anxiety is physical. Like you're hunched over, you're breathing really shallow. You're not breathing deep into your diaphragm. You're breathing in your chest. You're holding your breath. And you're experiencing depression and anxiety. And if you start to change your state physically, it will change you emotionally. There's tons of studies that show that exercise is one of the most beneficial things you can do for depression. Yeah, but I think the, the challenging thing is when you're really in that hole. And, and, and he, what I know, because I'm out of it now, yeah. you know, for sure, is diet, exercise, meditation, breathing, all that stuff, you know, is, is the cure. Exercise really is the anti-anxiety cure. I mean, it really, there's totally. no question about it. But when you're that dark 
and you can't get out of bed. Yeah. You know what I mean? Sometimes people need outside help. I mean, maybe medication can help at least get them from bed to the elliptical or to running or whatever, whatever it takes. But I mean, I, I agree. I mean, in my, my opinion is, you know, you try all that shit first. And if it's bad enough, you're going to try shit because I know when I've had panic attacks, you know, how bad it is. I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. No, of a panic course. Attack. You know, and if, and if it's that bad, I mean, you're going to try, you're going to fucking go running because that's, that's the only thing you can do sometimes when you're that pain and, and that much pain. Well, you know, uh, I, I think, listen, if you're going to fucking kill yourself or you're in a ton of pain and you need to take a medication, that's fine. I mean, we're, we're in a medication society. 70% of America is on one prescription medication and 50% is on two prescription medications. And so I've had tons of people come to my classes, they're on medication, and then they start doing the breath work and eventually they get off. But if you need it, you need it. Like if it that, I mean, some people need medication and I think that's totally fine. Um, but what you were talking about, I've, I've only experienced two real panic attacks in my life. And one of them was with you when we were scuba diving in Australia. It was my first scuba dive ever. And we went down and there was no visibility. I hadn't got any sleep the night before because the guy I was rooming with was hooking up with a girl, which I don't know how this guy hooked up with any girl on the planet, but whatever. No judgment. But he hooked up with this chick right next to me in Who? the bed. Rick. Remember Rick? It was in Australia. The blonde guy. He was from Boston. Sort of. Anyways. Okay. So he's hooking up with this chick in Australia right in the bed next to me. And I'm just like, oh, my God. So I got no sleep. And then I shoved a bunch of bananas and... Uh, nuts in my mouth and we go this dive and I had never been scuba diving except for my certification in the pool and out at uh, Catalina and the, the dive instructor is Finnish I can't understand one single word out of this guy's mouth except when he says shark he says shark I'm like did he just say shark and then as soon as we get in the water and I start getting down and equalizing there is no visibility on this dive like I can't see my hand three feet in front of my face, except I see a shark come out of the darkness and, and go right by me. And I start just going, <laughs> and uh -huh. I can see the gauge on my tank. The air is just leaving my tank super uh -huh. fast. And I am freaking out. And I start having a panic attack. And it's the first real panic attack I've ever had. I can't breathe. I think I'm going to die. My chest starts caving in on itself. I'm 30, 40 feet down in Sydney in the harbor or wherever the fuck we were. And I thought I was going to die. And I literally just made peace with it, with God. I was like, I, if I'm supposed to die here, this is where I'm supposed to die. And it like a calm came over me and I just felt okay with it. And it was really super weird. And then when we came up out of the water, you're like, are you okay? And there was all this blood in my mask. My a bunch of nose, uh, blood vessels in my nose had burst. And I just started puking in the water and you had to like pull me to the side of the boat. And I'm saved like, save your life, buddy. I don't know if you I saved my life. Saved your you life. pulled me to the boat when I was throwing up. I, I think saving my life is extreme. <laughs> but then what happened was we didn't want to do another dive. So these guys just said, okay, they brought us close to the shore. And we had to swim into the shore in our dive gear and then we uh, we had to take all our we borrowed someone's phone and we ordered a cab. Do you remember this? Mm -hmm. We took all our dive gear off. Some random person like back in the day. We because we had we were underwater, so we had no fucking clean, no clothes. We, we didn't have our wallets. Nothing. Any of that. It was all at the dive shop. So we ordered a cab to the dive shop, and then we had to get money. We told the cabbie to wait, and we went in there, and they didn't have our clothes because the clothes were in the van. So we got towels. We were naked in towels in a cab. In Australia, and we would take that back to the hotel. We walked into the hotel and nothing but towels. It was crazy. It was so good. That's the stuff that happens on tour. You're welcome for me saving your life. <laughs> hey, 
howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.